Hey folks, it's Jared. Dr. Sarah Caputo joins me this week to discuss her bottom-up look at the medical culture of the British seamen at the end of the long 18th century. This episode was edited and produced by Joshua Gruber. We are still looking for additional audio editors, and we're happy to provide you some very basic training materials and instruction in a low-stress environment. So if you're interested in finding a way to contribute to SimSec and add your resume and personal skill set, please send us an email with your resume to ccontrol at simsec.org. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shamates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Caputo, and we're going to be discussing your article from Social History of Medicine entitled Treating, Preventing, Feigning, Concealing. Sickness Agency in the Medical Culture of the British Naval Seamen at the End of the Long 18th Century. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, could I ask you to please introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you very much, Jared, and thank you for having me. Um, so, my name is Sarah Caputo. I am an affiliated lecturer, Faculty of History, University of Cambridge in the UK, and I'm also a Lumley Research Fellow at Magdalen College in the same university. And I work on maritime history, broadly understood, in the 18th and 19th century mainly, um, I start as a social and cultural historian, but I'm currently working on environmental, geographical, cartographical maritime history. Well, thank you very much. And as a reminder, all opinions express our own and not reflective of any institution with which we may be otherwise associated. So you started your paper with an observation that, and I quote, British naval medicine has traditionally been studied from the point of view of the state and of physicians and surgeons, end quote. Uh, why has no one done a patient's history to date and why did you decide to? So this um, notion of a patient's history is also relatively relatively recent in um, the historiography more generally. Um, It was actually um, only in the 1980s that Roy Porter pioneered this approach of a history from below of medicine, because until then, um, the obvious uh, thing that people looked at when doing the history of medicine was doctors and top down policies and inventions and improvements. The history of naval medicine has remained more in this traditional strand, I would say. Um, And there has been some incredibly good work done um, in this respect on the history of surgeons and on the history of um, medical policies. But there are two main reasons why I think so far no one had really done a history from below. And one is very practical, which is the nature of the sources that we have. There are... um, excellent sources for British naval historians. Um, Most of the Admiralty records um, have been kept in one way or the other. Obviously, they have been culled over the years, but we have very, very detailed ship level records. Um, And so what we are looking at is top down sources, administrative sources. And wanting to do a history from below, then you have to read them against the grain, um, adopt all sorts of other techniques. The voice of the individual sailor is not often that visible. So the obvious approach is looking at what the Navy was doing and what the doctors were doing. And there's also a bit of a theoretical background to this. Partly this notion that 18th century sailors were quite an irresponsible category, which we have inherited straight from the 18th century. This idea, um, slightly paternalistic idea, um, that the the sailor is an irresponsible person and the last thing they're thinking about is their own health. Um, And this is matched with the idea that militaries and navies in particular in this period are the places where modern institutional medicine was born. 
um, this kind of accordion structure of power and control over the bodies of individuals. So given these assumptions, one would think, well, what is there, what is there to see when you try and look at the patient's view? These were people who were in very constrained environments. Why I decided to look at them instead is, uh, well, precisely this reason. I think that if we are saying that the roots of modern institutional institutionalization are in this period and in this context, we might want to check whether uh, this institutionalization was really as total as we imagine it to be. Um, these prototypes of modern medicine, were they really functioning in this constrained way that left no leeway to um, the individual sailor? And so I started by from the assumption that maybe there is something else to look at. And so um, this is how these stories emerged. Well, then if you'll allow me a methodological question, how do you even come by all of the sailors' accounts, are those actually collected in some place? Are you reaching out to individual families? Because I can't imagine uh, that the, the sailors are not turning in their diaries and whatever they've collected over the years. which have to be uh, collected by somebody. So, um, well, I should say that the bulk of my sources are still uh, admiralty produced sources. Um, there are the odd memories and collections of letters. Uh, some have been published, some haven't, and they're scattered across um, archives across Britain and really the US as well. But much of my project still relies on admiralty records, only I'm looking at them with different questions in mind. So looking at surgeons' um, logs, for example, I am specifically looking for traces of interactions with the patient and patient agency, rather than trying to judge the surgeon themselves on, on how good they were at their job, what kinds of um, like practices they adopted, which is a very, very interesting strand of analysis in its own merit. But then I was I, I looked again at the same types of sources only from that point of view. And something else I'm doing is um, I'm trying to use quantitative methods um, that comes from my previous projects as well. I think if you're trying to do a social history from below, it's incredibly valuable to have the kind of data that the Navy produces. You have very little information for a very large number of individuals. And once you start collating it, you can see patterns of behavior that might be hidden otherwise. So there's all sorts of methods that I'm trying to combine. Obviously, it's a very difficult thing to do. And there's a reason why it's not being done very commonly. <laughs> so that was um, the the idea. And obviously, I should say, as with anything in, in history, it's not that I am the pioneer. There's always someone else who's tried approaches uh, in this direction. Well, those of us who find this stuff interesting really appreciate all the work that you and uh, the other PhDs are doing in this field. But uh, you mentioned an increased rigidity and order in the Royal Navy as the 18th century elapsed. What drove that change? Right. So in some ways, um, the narrative of increasing institutional control, professionalization and uh, formalization of structures, it can be quite problematic to assume this straight line of modernity emerging. Uh, so I'm not taking it at face value. There were ups and downs. And for example, when the Earl of St. Vincent was first Lord in 1801-1804, arguably that was a period of uh, disciplinary control that was <laughs> above what would happen in the following years and, and so without assuming a linear narrative we can nevertheless see that the navy is becoming more and more of a professional body in the modern sense across this period 
even in terms of the sheer size of what it was in charge of administering. So in 18, by 1809, um, at the peak of the Napoleonic Wars, the Navy is employing more than 140,000 sailors. And if we compare this to, say, 1760, uh, during the Seven Years' War, and that was only 86,000. These numbers are growing exponentially, even just in the second half of a century. And same in terms of the size of the ships themselves, the number of vessels and the stations uh, they were operating on. Because, again, in the middle of the century, during the Seven Years' War, um, they were actually only um, operating across five foreign stations. By the Napoleonic Wars, these are ten. And the stretch um, of the Navy is increasing and therefore these new structures have to be put in place because some things that were run informally before might not necessarily function as well anymore if unless you tighten the grip. But that being said, um, yeah, I don't believe that there was necessarily this linear narrative of growth. Just this sequence of ups and downs slowly trending towards a different type of structure institutionally. How did the Admiralty approach Siemens' health? So in line with what I, ju- what I just said, um, actually quite systematically, the most important thing to bear in mind is that seamen were a very valuable resource before anything else. Uh, as N.A.M. Roger has put it, um, manpower was one of the parameters of 18th century naval power. The need for especially skilled seamen, able seamen, people who were able to work uh, on the masts, that was personnel that was incredibly precious. And so Erica Charters and others have shown how the Navy really cared about these people's health. And the idea of, of keeping them in good health and functional was quite central to the whole war effort. And so the way it did so was through a specific body, the uh, Sick and Hurt Board, that throughout the century was in charge of hospitals, medical supplies, later on the appointment of surgeons to individual ships. And so acted as a central hub for uh, channeling all the medical activities of the Navy into specific squadrons and ships. And then, well, this incidentally is the same body that was also in charge of prisoners of war. And so often the discussion happens uh, in parallel. And then the Sick and Herd Board is abolished uh, in 1806 and the Transport Board takes over. Then in 1817, the Victoline Board takes over. And then um, in the 1830s, this goes over to the physician of the Navy, um, who is the ancestor of the present day medical director general. You see that there's always a specific body of people, specific attention directed to medicine. And in that way, the Admiralty manages to run this incredibly complicated business and appointing surgeons. Most ships end up having a surgeon, uh, although there are some that don't because there is a shortage of surgeons at the peak of the wars. But there is um, an attempt to keep track of the fine-grained details on a large scale from the centre. And everything is accounted for very tightly, I should say, as well, uh, as typical of the Admiralty. So expenditure, medicine used and uh, patients in hospitals, etc. How would you describe the relationship between the Royal Navy's officers and crew and how that may have deferred from other navies? Right. So that is a very interesting question. The thing is, there was something like an institutional culture. There always is. 
But I think when we do um, naval history, we need to bear in mind that each ship was its own self-contained community. The dynamics aboard each ship depended very much on the people in that specific community at that specific time. And so there have been, um, of course, um, studies of um, styles of leadership and different types um, of interactions between officers and, and men. Uh, some of some of these things, I suppose, are still uh, valid to the present day. And so to some extent, it was down to the individual officer. There were some that were leaning more towards paternalism. Others were known as very strict disciplinarians. All sorts of shades in between. Some were more effective, some were less effective in their interaction with the men, specifically as, as relates to hygiene as well, in, in terms of enforcing or encouraging or implementing rules um, on in terms of medicine and hygiene. Um, but the answer is that it's almost impossible to speak of the Navy as a thing when it comes to this kind of dynamics, because um, what happened was very much specific to the ship itself, the ship's company, the captain and his commissioned officers, and even the surgeon himself, um, how he related to the men. Now, that being said, how um, did that differ in other navies is an interesting question, because obviously, if we can compare, we we get to uh, understand if there is anything that is a kernel of commonality among all British ships that doesn't necessarily happen in the same way in other fleets. That is part of the bigger project that I'm engaged on. This article is the first shot of, of that. And this bigger project would be a comparative and transnational history of naval medicine across the British, French and Spanish fleets in this period. So the answer is, <laughs> I can tell you in a couple of years, hopefully, when the lockdowns um, have allowed me to finally go to French and Spanish archives. What I have for the moment is um, some evidence from British sources. So, for example, I mentioned in the article, um, a British surgeon was serving aboard a Russian ship in 1814, and he comments very negatively on uh, the attitudes of Russian officers towards uh, discipline aboard, um, this laissez-faire attitude, the men's health is their own business, and we don't um, get um, enmeshed with that. And from the British point of view, that looks very much like washing one's hands of it and um, allowing sickness to run unchecked. Again, here we need to take this with a pinch of salt because, um, as we said, it's this t typical paternalistic attitude that, well, the sailors are irresponsible, so unless they have an officer above them uh, forcing them to wash and, and dress and eat well and uh, take care of their own bodies, they won't. <laughs> and so there's a lot to unpack there. But definitely uh, the British officers are convinced that they are doing something better than everyone else at the time. How did sailors aboard British warships demonstrate agency in their treatment? I think in several ways. The main way that we don't often think about um, is they talked to the doctors. And we see evidence of um, this kind of dialogue across the sources it's just that sometimes we ignore it because we assume that expertise just flows from like top down and the doctors know what to do. They see a body that is diseased or sick or wounded and treat it. But in fact, the sailors spoke to their doctors, um, asked for specific treatment. For example, there are um, some cases of foreign sailors I found who were used to being bled. And so they went to the surgeon and said, no, 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 you have to bleed me now because that's what you do when you're sick. And the surgeon did. 
some patients who refused amputation, um, some patients who quite um, topically, I would say, refused inoculation. Smallpox inoculation had only been around for a couple of years, and they just, uh, when the surgeon sends people ashore who haven't had smallpox, sends them ashore to be inoculated, quite a few refuse. And they had that kind of freedom to do so, which um, is a level of personal autonomy that we wouldn't um, really assume if we take the Navy as this place of Foucauldian strict uh, control and imposition of power. So that is the most um, obvious way. A second way in which uh, they exerted agency was um, simply by going elsewhere. The 18th century historians, Roy Porter, again, is uh, one of the founders of um, this whole discussion, talk about a medical marketplace to go beyond this idea that qualified doctors, um, so university trained doctors are the only authority that people could consult when they were sick. In fact, there were all sorts of options and sailors were also immersed in, in this same environment. It's true that being aboard a ship may be not allowed to go ashore for quite a while. Um, they they had less of a marketplace available, but they, then they were also traveling all over the world. And there were people in boats coming up to the ship, even when the sailors themselves were not allowed to go ashore. The shipboard environment itself was a very cosmopolitan community where people from all sorts of places and all sorts of previous professions that might have something to contribute were on hand to help. And there are a few cases mentioned um, in the surgeons' journals who have sought help elsewhere, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. But um, a typical one, for example, was venereal diseases because um, up until the 1790s, the Navy was fining sailors uh, who were caught with a venereal disease. And so they just went elsewhere. So that's the second way in which they exerted agency. And then there's a third way, which um, is a bit more dramatic, and that is uh, by concealing the illness, just refusing to be seen by the surgeon. Um, and sometimes until that became a real problem for them, sometimes by inflicting injury to their own bodies uh, in order to be discharged, for example. And that is a form of agency stemming from desperation, but still um, something that shows that they could act as independent human beings, even within these institutions that were laying claim to their bodies. You know, sailors were constantly exposed to death and sickness. What was the consequence of that exposure? In some ways, I, I am very wary of making a psychological profiling assessment of people who have been dead <laughs> for 200 years. And also, I am obviously not um, qualified for it. But what you see over and over in the sources is that sometimes having been exposed to this kind of ongoing death and horrible sickness, horrible wounds, if they decided to leave the Navy, even a relatively small injury that to us would still look horrible was considered an acceptable sacrifice. And so in some ways, they acquired a new weapon. They were able to use their own body to um, build an escape route if they wanted to leave the Navy. Now, something I should say again is that it's very difficult to distinguish from where we stand between what is known as malingering so feigning illness or even causing self-injury and fictitious disorder, which is an actual 
medical illness it's a it's a mental illness um and they they present very similarly so from the sources it's quite hard to tell which of the two was being employed but um the there are many many examples of sailors who injured themselves or pretended to be sick in order to obtain this charge and what was different in the navy of the 18th century compared to today obviously malingering is still present in the armed forces um even in schools (laughs) It's, it's, a, it's a very common activity in society. But what was different was that 18th century surgeons lacked all the imaging, microbiological, biochemical diagnostic tools that doctors today have. So in many ways, they still had to rely on the patient's own word. And that's where we see this agency come back again. Um, the doctor had to speak to the patient. And so there were some all sorts of uh, illnesses that could be manufactured by these sailors who had witnessed them in shipmates all their life. And once they decided to exit the system, they knew exactly what um, yellow fever looked like. They they knew exactly what mental illness looked like. Um, And and so they could try and and make it up um, in a convincing way. And you describe what I always call a, a cat and mouse game between sailors trying to leave service and their surgeons. Did you provide some examples of what the sailors would do? I know you've talked about some of these a little bit already, but you had some more specific examples that you provide in the paper. Yeah, so there are actually quite a lot of examples emerging in the sources. Um, the surgeons on their part, often they suspect a man of uh, trying to cheat the system. And so they have their own tricks. They they come in and they ask specific questions, trying to confuse uh, the patient about their symptoms, or they, they just randomly barge in with sudden unexpected visits and try and catch them. And on the part of the sailors instead, um, sometimes we have these things reported secondhand by the surgeons, uh, but there are also a couple of memoirs that survive that describe these tricks. There's this case of an American sailor who is trying to get himself discharged from a British ship. So he drinks one pint of vinegar a day and then he rubs alum on his tongue to make it white and wraps his elbow on the ceiling so that his pulse accelerates. And whenever the doctor comes to see him, he looks really sick. And eventually he manages to get discharged. Um, Another man uh, just drinks tobacco juice uh, and then obviously gets sick from that. Then he uses red ink so that it looks like he's vomiting blood. And again, he manages to get sent to the hospital. Now, all of these stories, to some extent, especially given that quite a few of them come from American memoirs, so memoirs of American sailors, who had been impressed into the British Navy, uh, are never going to portray British officers as particularly smart (laughs) or difficult to deceive. Uh, So we need to take them with a pinch of salt. But we also have um, actual text by doctors at the time who describe this type of thing. And and these activities were on a whole uh, spectrum from uh, just simulating sickness to provoking some of the symptoms, like uh, the vomit. And and how far a man was prepared to go depended, of course, uh, on on the state of desperation they were in and their psychological conditions and all sorts. But um, yes, there were all all sorts of options there. And I should say that sometimes the surgeons were deceived, but um, I've also found evidence of surgeons who were more than happy to have these people go away because after a while they had become a real problem. They were a nuisance. They were like every day they were knocking on their door, (laughs) pretending to be sick, 
And so it's like, you know, let's assume you are actually sick. I'll send you ashore. And then you are the problem of the people in the hospital and not my problem anymore. And so it worked in some cases because of that. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. The article, uh, again, it appeared in the Social History of Medicine. It's entitled Treating, Preventing, Feigning, Concealing, Sickness Agency in the Medical Culture Medical Culture of the British Naval Seamen at the End of the Long 18th Century. It's by Dr. Sarah Caputo. I will have a link post in the show notes, but I'd like to thank my guests. Uh, Sarah, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Thank you. So um, I am uh, probably the best place, the most up-to-date place online is um, my page on the University of Cambridge Faculty of History website. Otherwise, I'm also on Twitter with my name, Sarah Caputo. I am working on several projects of which um, this is one, um, the history of, of naval medicine in this period. I have just finished a book entitled Foreign Jack Tars, the British Navy and Transnational Seafarers during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, which is what it says on the tin. It's about foreign sailors serving in the British Navy of this period. And I'm currently working on another book um, about the cartography of maritime travel. So uh, that should be out in a couple of years, hopefully, if I manage to finish it. (laughs) But yes, these are my current projects. I look forward to reading those and hopefully we can bring you back to talk about them as they, uh, as they go to the publisher. But thank you again for joining us. For the listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.